0: Hi, my name's Max, and I'm the host of the Latin American History Podcast. Before handing you over to Andy, I just wanted to take a second to let you know about my podcast. Like Africa and African history, Latin America is a region which is often forgotten. It's a fascinating place, though, born of an almost unbelievably vibrant mixing of cultures. Its history is full of exciting, dramatic and at times brutal stories and characters. And you might be surprised how much of an impact these have had on our world today. So if that sounds interesting, search for the Latin American History Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get them from. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last week, we left off on the early stages of the rule of the Oximite King, Azana. He had recently subdued the Beja peoples to Oxum's north, and had begun the gradual process of conversion to Christianity. He still upholds the old way of Aksumite paganism, but now from a henotheistic perspective, or believing in the existence of multiple gods, but only worshipping one. This week, Izana will face new struggles. He will have to finalize his conversion to Christianity, deal with a diplomatic crisis with the Roman Empire, and take action when a kingdom to his northwest descends into chaos. Without further ado... Let's begin. Episode 18, Izana's Conquest of Nubia. In the year 334 AD, the new religion of Christianity was booming throughout the Empire of Oxum. The Bishop Fermentius, a Syrian monk who was on a mission to spread the Christian faith, had been having a great deal of success proselytizing his religion to the Oxumite locals. This success can largely be attributed to a new strategy that Fermentius adopted. In order to make the message of his strange and foreign religion more clear to the people of Oxum, Fermentius decided to omit the more confusing aspects of Christian doctrine, like the Trinity, when speaking with new converts. Instead, he focused his attention on spreading the word of the Old Testament, with more straightforward and fable-like stories being received well by Oxum's population. Additionally, Oxum already had a fairly substantial Jewish population, so many of the Oxumite people were at least already vaguely familiar with some of the concepts that Fermentius was teaching them about. However, while Fermentius found some success in Oxum, especially among the cosmopolitan merchant and artisan classes, his message was failing to land with two specific, very important demographics the peasantry and the nobles. Like in most societies, the peasants and nobility of Aksum were more conservative than the people in the cities. They believed in the status quo, in the traditional faith. To them, the king of Aksum was still the son of the war god Maher, and that his word was divine, not the word of some ancient Jewish book. When Fermentius tried to convert these people, they rejected his message outright. Fermentius went to his longtime friend and former student, the Aksumite king Ezana. He explained that the nobility and peasantry would not budge on the matter of conversion if their beloved king did not lead them there. So, Azana, if you would, please let me officially give you a public baptism. This was not the first time that Fermentius had pleaded with Izana to convert. He had asked previously on multiple occasions, and each time the king had declined. While he had strong private sympathies for Christianity and its teachings, he simply didn't believe that Oxum was ready for a Christian monarch. He and the previous generations of Aksumite kings had claimed their legitimacy by being the literal sons of a god. If he converted to Christianity, which rejects the existence of other gods, he would have to end this claim and jeopardize his position on the throne. However, Azana felt differently this time. What exactly motivated this change is unclear. Maybe he thought that enough of the empire had converted already, or perhaps he had floated the idea to some nobles with a less negative reception than he expected. Regardless of why, what we do know is that, after nine years on the throne, Izana finally pulled the theological trigger and officially converted to Christianity. His inscriptions in both Gaeas and Greek no longer mention the vague concept of the Lord of Heaven, but now instead overtly reference God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. On his coins, the horizontal crescent and disc, the symbol of the power of the Aksumite Pantheon, was replaced with that of a cross. With Azana's conversion, he also declared Christianity as Aksum's new state religion, and put who else but Frumentius as the head of his new official state church. Depending on who you ask, Aksum is either the first or second country in the world to declare Christianity as its state religion. Armenia, thousands of miles to the north, may have converted just one year earlier than Aksum, and beaten them to this great achievement. But there's some, let's say, healthy debate on the subject. Regardless, despite Azana's decision to convert, it seems that his initial apprehensions about the concept were not entirely misplaced. This decision would anger a portion of Aksumite society, but not the ones he expected. Azana's apprehension about the nobility's acceptance of Christianity as a state religion appears to be, for the most part, misplaced. The noble families of Oxum, while not necessarily happy about the proclamation, got over their initial shock the decline in legitimacy that he expected never came to fruition. After all, before the conversion, Aksumite kings claimed to be the son of the god Maher. Now, while Azana no longer claimed personal godliness, he still claimed that the one god in existence had chosen him personally to be the rightful ruler of Aksum. And, when it comes down to ruling a country, is being the son of God and being chosen by God really all that different? The peasants, as well, were easy to convert to his Christian cause. Oxumite peasants, like most peasants at the time, were more superstitious and overtly loyal to the king than the cosmopolitan merchants and craftsmen. So, when Azana told the peasants that they should pray to this new Christian god instead of Ostar, they figured, uh, sure, whatever you command, almighty king of kings. No, it wasn't the nobility or peasants, or really any other economic class of people who proved difficult to convert. Instead, it was a religious group, the Ethiopian Jews, also known as the Beta Israelites. So, who are these Ethiopian Jewish people? How Jewish people first arrived in Ethiopia is pretty obscure. However, it is clear that whenever they arrived, it was a long time ago. The view espoused by many Ethiopian Jews today, as well as most scholars on the matter, is that the Beta Israelites are actually descended from a tribe of Hebrews who were forcefully deported from the Holy Land in 740 BC by the Empire of Assyria. Specifically, the Beta Israelites claimed descent from the tribe of Dan, one of the famous Lost Tribes of Israel, and that their numbers were bolstered hundreds of years later from Jewish refugees fleeing the sack of Jerusalem by the Romans. In 340 AD, there was a fairly large portion of Oxum's population that identified as Jewish. The Beta Israelites had enjoyed life under the polytheistic kingdom of Oxum. As we learned last episode, the Oxumite kingdom was pretty tolerant when it came to other people's religions, So, Aksumite Jews were allowed to worship in relatively undisturbed isolation. But once Azana had declared Christianity to be the state religion of Aksum, this isolation was broken. Suddenly, Aksumite Jewish communities were flooded with Christian missionaries. However, while these missionaries were eager to spread their faith, the Beta Israelites were not eager to convert. As I'm sure most people can relate to, having people constantly knock on your door and ask if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior can get pretty annoying after a while. While the details have been lost, it seems that something lit sort of a fuse of tension between the Christian and Jewish communities. Soon, brawls in the streets between mobs of Jews and Christians became common, and these brawls eventually began to transform into pogroms. Understanding that they could no longer live undisturbed in this new Christian oxen, Many of the Beta Israelites began an exodus deep into the Simeon Mountains, an isolated region that was already one of the biggest centers of Ethiopian Jewish worship. Around the shores of Lake Tana, one of the families who led the Jewish exodus to the Simeon Mountains declared a new kingdom. This family was called the Gideons, and one of their most respected sons, Phineas, was declared the king. During its own time, this kingdom would be called the Kingdom of the Gideons, but modern historians call it the Kingdom of Simeon. It seems that this exodus of Oxum's Jewish population didn't really bother Azana, as he made no effort to woo them back to the Oxumite fold. After all, while their exodus might seem like a grand statement of independence, the Beta Israelites weren't really interested in that, and instead just wanted to be left alone. Their new kingdom continued to pay taxes in the form of tribute to Azana. If anything, Azana might have been relieved about this whole thing. It's fairly clear that Azana himself never cared too much about converting the Beta Israelites, as he made no effort to try and convert them after they fled. But, now that they were off doing their own things in the mountains, religious tensions in the capital cooled back down to normal. And it's a good thing that they did, because Azana soon found himself facing another challenge that required his attention. In the year 337, to Oxum's north, the Roman emperor Constantine died. And in his place, the empire was split between his two sons, confusingly named Constantine II and Constantius. While Constantine was a firm believer in the Nicene form of Christianity, Constantius was an Arian. This sect of Christianity believed that Jesus, the Son, was created by God, the Father, and was therefore inferior. While Arianism had been declared heretical by the Council of Nicaea a few years earlier, the sect was still commonly practiced throughout the empire. Now that Constantius, a staunch Arian, had ascended to become the emperor of Rome, he began his own persecution, but this time of Nicene Christians. Nicene bishops and priests were fired from their post and replaced with loyal Arians. Not even the highest positions, like the Patriarch of Alexandria, were immune, and the Patriarch too was replaced. The new Arian Patriarch, while sifting through some old records, noticed that, about a decade ago, the old Patriarch had appointed some guy named Frumentius to be the new Bishop of Oxum. This Frumentius guy was probably a no-good Nicene. Okay, no big deal, he figured. I'll just tell the emperor to write to the king of Aksum, and I'm sure he'll replace him. So, Constantius wrote a strongly worded message to his honor, demanding that he fire for In his place, he offered to replace him with an eccentric Arian priest named Theophilus the Indian. Now, Theophilus is a super interesting guy, and honestly, some of the hijinks he gets up to are completely hilarious. He's kind of the Mr. Bean of early Christian anti-Orthodox priests. I really want to talk about the stuff he gets up to, but it's not really relevant for the episode, so I'll be doing a special episode on him for my Patreon donors. If you'd like to hear this special episode about Theophilus, the wacky priest, or if you'd just like to help keep the show running, you can do so by supporting us on Patreon. We put about 20 hours of work each week into researching, writing, editing, and uploading these shows, and Patreon serves as the engine that fuels the podcast. And, for those who are already supporting us on Patreon, thanks. Anyways, this audacious demand to recall Frumentius was, obviously, rejected by Azana. I mean, Frumentius has been Azana's friend and mentor since his early childhood, and he's been incredibly successful in his job of converting the people of Oxum, and you want to be recalled because you think he's wrong about some theological details of the trinity. Yeah, No. This failure to dismiss Frumentius would cause something of a rupture in diplomatic relations between Oxum and Rome. It also serves as strong evidence that, even in this early stage, the Ethiopian church was independent from its very foundation. With Frumentius being Roman in origin, and with Azana adopting Nicene Christianity, a Romanized form of the faith, it might seem that Oxumite Christianity was just a foreign branch of the Roman church, and that they were therefore religiously subservient to the Romans. But when Fermentius was retained, despite direct orders from the Patriarch of Alexandria and the Emperor of Rome to remove him, it became clear that the Church of Aksum was an organization related to, but distinct from the Roman Church. Ethiopian Christianity would, over the next centuries, occasionally absorb influences from foreign Christian movements, but this independent spirit established by Azana would remain a consistent aspect of the Church throughout the rest of its history. With Fermentius remaining in his position at the head of the church, he and Azana continued their campaign to spread Christianity throughout Oxum for the next 25 years. Between the years 335 and 360, Oxum enjoyed an extended time of both domestic and foreign peace. Oxumite coins from this period contain an interesting slogan written on them that showcases how Azana portrayed himself to his subjects. Inscriptions on previous Oxumite coinage are pretty bland, They usually only contain a printing of the king's name, followed by the title of Negus of Oxum. Ezana's coins, however, contain a peculiar slogan, May this please the people. This shows that Ezana was, at the very least, more concerned with portraying himself as a friend to the common people of Oxum than previous kings. However, this extended 25-year-long peace would come to an end in the year 360 AD, when a series of events that occurred in Oxum's northwestern neighbor, the Nubian kingdom of Meroe, escalated into a full-fledged crisis. Nubia, or Kush as it's sometimes called, is a civilization which I'm sure at some point I'll go back and cover on this show. It has a long and glorious history that spans centuries. Stretching throughout the southern Nile Valley, Nubian civilization is remembered primarily for its rivalry with Egypt. The history of Nubia is generally divided into three periods, or kingdoms, named after their capital city, with Kerma being the oldest, followed by the Napata Kingdom, and then the last period, known as the Kingdom of Meroe. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out, through expert interviews and captivating stories, Listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. To make matters short, the ancient Napata kingdom was the peak of Nubian power. This is the famous Nubian dynasty that conquered Egypt. And when people talk about ancient Kush, this is usually the period they're referring to. This golden age, however, came to an end when an Assyrian invasion forced the Kushites out of Egypt. From there, Napata continued to decline until, in 591 BC, the capital was moved south to the city of Meroe. The kingdom of Meroe would continue to be a major power in the region of northeast Africa, managing to hold its own in wars against the Assyrian, Persian, and even Roman empires. Compared to the relative newcomers of Oxum, Meroe was an incredibly ancient civilization. The latest era of the kingdom had started before Oxum was even truly established as a city, much less a regional hegemon. Its relationship with the now long-established kingdom of Meroe was bad right from the get-go. Ever since Oxum's rise to become a major commercial power around the 1st century AD, Aksumite merchants were frequently annoyed by the stingy enforcement of tariffs by the Meroitic government. Meroe controlled the Nile River, which meant that if Aksumite merchants ever wanted to make use of the river as an extremely convenient shipping route that led directly to their biggest customer, they would have to pay outrageously high customs duties. In fact, you could argue that many of the actions taken by kings of Aksum throughout its existence, like the construction of Godarat's Road, the invasion of Arabia, or the subjugation of the Beja, were done with the clear intention of trying to find ways to help their merchants avoid paying tariffs. Now, Meroe wasn't just implementing these tariffs to be greedy. The kingdom had been rocked by a series of crises during the first century AD, which had forced the state to fall from a sophisticated and vibrant civilization into a state in permanent decline. The initial spark of these troubles was the aforementioned war that the Nubians endured with Rome. While the Romans had not managed to conquer Meroe, the war had caused serious damage to the kingdom's cities and infrastructure, most cripplingly, however, was that in order to fight this war, the kingdom of Merroway had relied on companies of expensive mercenaries. The kings of Merroway were unable to pay these mercenaries the money they were owed. Now, they weren't dumb, and they knew that trying to scam armed and dangerous mercenaries out of money that you owe them is a really bad idea. So, instead, they decided that, rather than paying them in money, they would pay them in farmland. Which, just to sweeten the deal a little bit, would be tax-free. While the act of giving these mercenaries land was relatively harmless at first, this system of farmland as a reward for service would become a huge problem. With its tax base decreased from all this newly exempt farmland, Meroe could only afford to raise smaller armies. These smaller armies would increase their reliance on mercenaries, who they would then pay in the form of tax-free farmland, culminating in a gradual downward spiral over the next 300 years. Eventually, most of meroe's agricultural industry was dominated by these tax-exempt warlords. And to make matters even worse, the staple industry of Nubia, ivory, was being undermined by cheaper and more abundant prices from, who else but Oxum. So, desperate for any kind of revenue, the Nubians are forced to increase tariffs on merchants who pass through their territory to an absurd level. This worked at first, and the Nubian coffers briefly recovered, but as we've seen, merchants don't typically enjoy being taxed. so They went out of their way to avoid crossing through Nubia. So now, Meroe couldn't tax its own people, nor could it tax foreign merchants, and with merchants refusing to cross through their realm, they couldn't even make money off of foreign trade either. How could things possibly get worse from here? Well, in the year 300 AD, things got worse. A people of nomads from the western Egyptian desert, called the Noba, invaded the northern region of Nubia. The government in Meroe, powerless to do anything about them, was forced to sit back and watch as the northern half of their kingdom fell into foreign hands. This northern half of Nubia formed the basis of a new kingdom, known as the Kingdom of Nobatia. The rest of Nubia, which had not been captured by the Noba, essentially became governed by local city leaders, powerful landowners, or the elders of the most powerful clan that happened to be in town. Izana had been watching events in Meroe closely and ever since he had taken the throne, he had, frankly, been waiting for any excuse to invade. If the final remains of Meroe were defeated, then Oxum's merchants could finally make use of the tremendously valuable Nile River to easily ship goods to Egypt. In the year 360, a small militia of Nubians had made a brief incursion into Aksumite territory, likely trying to secure some ivory hunting grounds. Considering that Meroe was essentially a failed state at this point, I find it hard to believe that this militia was acting under orders from their government. But, just like that, Izana had the excuse to make war that he was waiting for. While previous Aksumite kings had engaged in brief raids and punitive expeditions into Nubian land, Izana intended to turn this into a full-scale invasion, to end the centuries-old empire who had caused so many economic inconveniences for Aksum. Izana assembled a sizable force, which he placed once again under the stewardship of his trusted brother, Saizana. This army marched straight towards the city of Meroe, Trampling the token resistance that local militias managed to muster. When the army arrived at the city, the capital of Oxum's longtime enemies was not spared. The city was ravaged and sacked mercilessly. The old king of Meraway was overthrown, and in his place, Sizana crowned an easy to control Oxumite puppet as king. This puppet king didn't last very long and died just a few years later. Azana figured that ruling over such a fractured kingdom in a decentralized manner was no longer advantageous. Instead, he set up a new client kingdom, the Kingdom of Elodia, based in the wealthy Nile trade hub of Soba. With this decision, the Kingdom of Meroe officially ended, and the Kingdom of Elodia would rule southern Nubia as an oxumite puppet for the next two centuries. To commemorate his brother's overwhelming victory, King Azana ordered the construction of a great stone slab. This slab, known as the Azana Stone, provides a trilingual description of the great achievements of Azana's reign. The stone's text is carved in Ge'ez, Greek, and Sabaic, making sure that the Azana Stone was a monument with a target demographic of, well, basically everyone. Azana wanted everybody, native or visitor to the city, to understand the glory of his conquest. Shortly after his conquest of Meroe, Azana's health rapidly began to deteriorate. Sizana, who had always technically held the title of co-ruler throughout his brother's reign, began to take on an increasing amount of responsibility from his physically declining brother. Eventually, Azana's life ended in the early 360s AD. Upon his death, Azana was given a traditional Aksumite funeral. As onlookers watched, weeping with sorrow, the body of their beloved king was lowered into a deep underground grave, where it was put to rest. His grave was marked with the erection of an enormous monolithic stone slab, known as a stelae. The stelae of Oxum are some of the most famous and recognizable monuments that the Oxumites have ever produced. And while Azana was not the first Oxumite king to be buried under this type of monument, his stelae is the only one who we can confidently say who it belongs to. While Azana's stelae stands at an impressive 21 meters or 79 feet tall, The largest stelae reached a height of more than 33 meters, or 108 feet. Height, however, is not the only thing impressive about these stones. For starters, these structures were monolithic, meaning that they were carved from one massive quarried stone, in this case, Nepheline Sienite. This material, similar in appearance to granite, is especially weather-resistant, meaning that the carvings and patterns on this stelae have remained remarkably well-preserved throughout the ages. The intricate carvings on the stele resemble, well, basically a skyscraper. The carvings depict multiple distinct floors, with a false door carved on the lowest floor, and designs resembling windows on each of the floors above. Why these monoliths are carved to resemble multi-story buildings is unclear to us today. One theory believes that earlier grave stele in East Africa were carved to resemble a one-story house, and that over time, to one-up the previous stele, another floor would be added and that this escalation of height continued until the stele stretched to the limits of what was possible to build with monolithic rock. Apparently, some pushed a little bit beyond that limit. The tallest stele I told you about earlier fell over and broke when it was being raised to mark a grave. However, unless we find more evidence to support a different view in the future, unfortunately this mere speculation is our best guess as to why the oxumites built these magnificent monuments. King Azana's stele still stands in the city of Oxum today. If you'd like to see some pictures of this tremendous monolith, you can view them on our blog. Ezana would be the last Oxumite king to construct one of these magnificent grave markers. Due to their association with Oxumite paganism, the tradition would rapidly fall out of favor as Christianity became an increasingly integral part within Oxumite life. Join us in two weeks, when our next episode focuses on the life of Mejadias, Oxum's first zealot king, who will push for the final extinction of Oxumite paganism. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested.